And welcome to episode three of The Query Show, a podcast to help writers get published. I'm Blair Thornburg, host, editor, query critiquer all around, uh, and thanks for listening. It was really exciting to officially launch the show last week. I'm really excited to see the response. It seems like a lot of people are excited to listen, so I am excited to bring you more episodes. Today, we are going to look at two sci-fi queries, um, one from Christopher and one from Laura. So thanks for sending them in. And let's get started. Okay, this first query comes from Christopher, and I'll read the whole query first and then go back and go paragraph by paragraph to give my critique. Dear Ms. Thornburg, humanity picked a fight with the first alien species it encountered, and those aliens kicked humanity's ass. That was 25 years ago. Things have been difficult since. Oksana Liang has never known anything but the life shaped for her by her Imri masters. They've made her into a weapon and pointed her at their enemies. For years, she's struck without considering anything other than their desires. Now, something has unlocked within her mind, and a compulsion she can't resist bids her return to the human race. Two words have been seared into her brain. Come home. David Ash spent 20 years in the resistance before he was finally captured. Now he's trapped, slaving away in an asteroid mine until his body finally fails him and brings about his execution. Fortunately, he possesses a nearly singular talent, the ability to work with low-level Imri code. That makes him valuable, and someone wants him. Martin Trujo was born after the war. For him, a city full of Imir, Zaksari, Shensu, and Hrajad is merely the status quo. It's the AI grafted to his brain that's unusual. Not that he has any way of investigating it, poverty and isolation on humanity's most distant colony make anything beyond the scrabble for survival nearly impossible. Plus, now he's got this whole murder accusation thing to deal with. The assassin, the terrorist, and the hacker, recruited by a government that doesn't technically exist and tasked with a mission that few believe can be accomplished. The fate of humanity rests on their shoulders. Together, they will make their way to a distant system, board an Imri Ark, and break through its security. They will charm its AI, steal the ship, and deliver its precious technology for study. If only they liked each other. Divergence Point, a science fiction novel, 103,000 words, is a standalone work with room for sequels. My previous works include the I Am trilogy, an urban fantasy series, and The Broken God Machine, a young adult science fiction novel. I have also had short fiction published in The Greatest Uncommon Denominator magazine and Aurora Wolf magazine. Thank you for your time and consideration. Okay, this is great stuff. I really apologize for probably mangling all the names of these fictional alien species. I am not an audiobook narrator and I'm not well trained on uh, multiple vowels and consonants at once. But anyway, we will forge on. So the first paragraph, humanity picked a fight with the first alien species it encountered and those aliens kicked humanity's ass. I mean, what's not to like? It's a great opening. It lets us know what the story is going to be like, both in terms of genre, aliens equaling sci-fi, generally speaking, and in terms of tone, kicking ass, generally speaking, equals a sense of humor. We also know how long ago said ass-kicking occurred, and we get more dry humor from the things have been difficult since. Like, yeah, no kidding. My only real quibble here is that the phrase picked a fight with the first alien species it encountered is a teeny bit wordy. The rest of the paragraph is so punchy that I want every sentence to be as sleek as possible. 
Something like, humanity picked a fight with the first aliens it met, and those aliens kicked humanity's ass. Just eliminating species, since the meaning still stands, and swapping encountered for met, which does change the tone of the phrase a bit, I'll admit, can really help. Now the second paragraph. Aksana Liang has never known anything but the life shaped for her by her Imri masters. Protagonist 1, reporting for Dooney. This is a great paragraph with tons of information. I particularly like the structure of, for years, she's struck without considering, now something has unlocked. That shows the reader the evolution of Ascana's attitudes. A few things here, though. Made her into a weapon and pointed her at their enemies has me picturing her literally aimed cannon-style at the enemies, but presumably she's not a ballistic weapon. So, two thoughts. Specify how she's weaponized, and maybe swap pointed her at for something less concrete, e.g. used her to destroy. I also wonder why she's struck without thinking of anything but her master's desires. What does she want before this compulsion to return takes her over? Why is she compelled to do this for them? And similar, what force propels us from the four years period to the now period? In other words, what is this something that has been unlocked within her mind? I think that needs to be more specific. And you guessed it, I am wondering, what are the stakes? Will her masters try to kill her if she attempts an escape? What will happen, good or bad, if she takes this risk? For that matter, is it even a risk? I get the sense that it is, but nothing in this paragraph actually spells out whether there's any danger to leaving back for humanity. Next, David Ash spent 20 years in the Resistance before he was finally captured. Now he's trapped, slaving away in an asteroid mine. Bull, an asteroid mine sounds like a real drag. But again, a good explanation of the contrasting periods of before and after for this protagonist, so we know who David was, is, and has potential to be. Just a few points of specificity here. What did he do in the resistance? For that matter, what is the resistance? What are they resisting? Second, brings about his execution implies to me that he actually gets executed. I think a phrasing like, his body finally fails him and he's next on the block for execution, or similar, would show that he's close but not actually dead. And now we come to Martin, with the AI grafted on his brain and the whole murder accusation thing to deal with. I love this last line. It brings back some of that humor we had earlier. And in this paragraph, we've got a bunch of new groups, the city full of Emir Zaksari, Shensu, and Harajad. I'm really sorry. As you can tell by my stumbling pronunciation, um, I have to wonder, we know in the beginning of this query that humanity picked a fight with aliens. All these names sound like aliens. So which ones are the ones we fought? All of them? None of them? It kind of goes back to my question about the resistance, too. What is the resistance? This paragraph does do a good job of showing that, with Martin's post-war birth as signpost, these aliens weren't in the city before the war. But beyond that, I still feel a little locked out. As for the unusual AI grafted onto his brain, I'm wondering whether this is unusual to Martin personally, or whether it's unusual overall in his society. Considering it follows a sentence about a city and the implication that the people from before the war wouldn't accept it as status quo, I'm not clear on the context for the abnormality of this AI. Do the other people think it's abnormal, or just Martin feels that it's weird? Finally, like I said, I love this whole murder accusation thing as a phrase. However, I think it needs a bit more explanation and situating in terms of what Martin will do about it. Even a phrase at the end here, like, now he'll have to X, or else Y, will help throw his wants and needs into sharper focus. 
Now we get the paragraph with the assassin, the terrorist, and the hacker. If only they liked each other. I love the summation of each of their archetypes. Ar archetypes, I never know how to say that word. It hammers their characters home and it makes the overall shape of the story feel concrete, like a trailer for an Oceans movie, like bam, 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 here are all your personalities. My only tweak for that first sentence is to consider shortening that few believe can be accomplished to avoid the passive voice with something like that's almost certain to fail or something more artful to that effect. I'm also not crazy about the fate of humanity rests on their shoulders just because the phrasing is cliche. It lacks specificity, perhaps because we don't know too much about the context of the aliens versus humans resistance, but also because it cuts short the arc of their mission description, given that the next sentence is all about the logistics. So I would cut this one line. Finally, I can see that the forces that bring them together are purposefully cast in the background, and I think that's okay. This is a story about these three characters, not whoever's masterminding their mission. However, I still don't know how or why they all team up. I love the one-liner about not liking each other, but based on the introductions we've had so far, these are three very different people in three very different and possibly distant contexts. That's an awesome start to a strange bedfellows story, but we still have to get them into the bed, if that makes sense. So for each of them, what's the carrot or stick that entices them to get involved with this mission? What are the promises or threats that are made? And how and why do the three of them end up as this ragtag band? Now we have the summary paragraph, which details that it's a science fiction novel, how long it is, the author's previous works. It's very solid. There's a great mention of room for sequels without pushing the issue that it must be a series, always a plus. My only suggestion is to leave out, which you can't see listening to this podcast, but the author has included URLs linking to their previous works. Just leave those out and name the titles alone. And also specify if those books were traditionally published or self or indie published, because agents will definitely want to know so they can have a sense of where your career has been so they can help you get to where you want it to be. Um, but other than that, this is really great. A really intriguing sounding story. And um, I'm really grateful that you sent in this query, Christopher. All right, and next up we have another sci-fi query. This one comes from Laura, who is one of the show's patrons. So I'm really excited to feature her query on the show. Dear Agent, Time agents Epi Stein and Dante Sandoval have been best friends for years, despite the fact that they live in different universes, which makes it hard to schedule lunch dates. No matter what, though, they always have each other's backs on tough missions. However, they can't let their respective admirals know about it because hopping from one alternate universe to another is against the rules. Everything is fine until Sandoval's Earth is destroyed. It leaves him homeless, badly burned, and thrown to the agency in Epi's universe and even worse, believing his family is lost. And boy, does Epi have a lot of explaining to do to his boss. Doesn't help that Hermes, god of time travel, is too busy trying to corral Kirsty, Sandoval's daughter, to stop by the time agency and back up Epi's claims. Never give a 16-year-old a chronometer unless you're certain they can handle it responsibly. Epi and Sandoval discover the cause of Earth's destruction and head to the past to stop it. When Sandoval gives up and falls to the dark side, deciding to just shoot first and kill the demigoddess he holds responsible for all of it, Epi tears out his hair trying to corral his grief-stricken friend so he doesn't assassinate a millennial for something she hasn't done yet, find his friend's rogue time-traveling daughter, and convincingly play a drunken eBay salesman at the bar where said millennial demigoddess works so he can keep an eye on her. Good thing he can multitask. Fate, Love, and Hand Grenades is an 85,000-word time-travel novel with multiple points of view. 
It is a standalone novel with series potential, which combines Greek myth and sci-fi, as does Dan Simmons' Ilium, with humor and time travel such as that in Star Trek The Voyage Home. I attended the James Gunn Speculative Writing Workshop at the University of Kansas in 2016, have a story coming out next year in an anthology by Holly Lyle, and I currently intern for Entangled. You can find me on social media at my social media info. Thank you for your time and consideration. Okay, so let's dive back into this first paragraph. Two time agents, they live in different universes, they can't get together for lunch dates. I love the humor in this first paragraph. It's another great example of a sci-fi story that shows that it has a sense of humor right from the get-go. You know, in this world, we have time agents, but people still have lunch dates. Color me intrigued. The issue I see in this first paragraph is just a little wordiness. There's potential to streamline. For example, I would say, even though living in different universes makes it hard to schedule lunch dates, losing despite the fact and which to keep it nice and snappy. Then in the second sentences, I'd revise to, they always have each other's backs on tough missions, but it's a secret from their respective admirals. Hopping from one alternate universe to another is against the rules. Now you can't see this because I just read it aloud, but there's an M dash there. Admirals dash, hopping from one. I love M dashes used judiciously. They pack a nice punch. Also, small point, but I was wondering about the phrasing of against the rules when it comes to hopping from universe to universe. Is it just like a slap on the wrist kind of thing, or are they a bigger deal? If you're thinking this sounds like a question about stakes, well, you're right. What would happen if you broke the rules? A word like regulations or laws, something like that, if appropriate to the situation, would carry a little more oomph here. All right, so now Sandoval's earth is destroyed, he's homeless, Epi has to explain to his boss, and you should never give a 16-year-old a chronometer. Teens and their chronometers, what will the kids think of next? No, I'm joking, but I do love that line. Um, one thing that I wonder, though, here is that we're referring to one character by his last name and the other by his first name, so it doesn't really necessarily matter because maybe that's the way they're referred to in the book, but it was something that stuck out to me. Here, too, I think there are sentences that can just get joined up and streamlined to save words. For example, ditching the pronoun phrase, it leaves, and just running the first and second sentences together so that it's, until Sandoval's earth is destroyed, leaving him homeless, instead of, it leaves him homeless. I also wonder about believing his family is lost. Believing implies that they're not lost, and he just thinks they are, but at this point, would he be able to know that? There would be more tension if the reader only had as much information as the character does, i.e. if the query implies that, yep, the family's dead, then you can do a bigger reveal later. Next, the transition of, and boy, does Epi have a lot of explaining to do, it doesn't quite work. We're switching to focus on Epi's situation, but, and boy, is the kind of phrase that builds on the preceding sentence, and the preceding sentence here only tangentially involves Epi. I think something as simple as, now Epi's got a lot of explaining to do to his boss, would work just fine. I love that Hermes is the god of time travel. I mean, of course he is. But I'm confused about Kirsty. At this point, Sandoval must know his family isn't lost, right? If his daughter's still out there? Or does he not know that his daughter's still out there? If he does realize she's out there and alive, it means that he probably doesn't think his family is lost for very long which makes me wonder how significant that misbelief really is in the overall arc of the plot. Also, a small point here, but corral isn't quite the right word here. You more corral something when it's already in front of you and you're just fencing it in. In this case, I think it's more of a wrangling or coercing. Finally, when it comes to this very wise advice, re-teens and chronometers, whose advice is this? 
That is to say, who wants to give the chronometer and who doesn't think it's a good idea? I'm guessing it's Epi's implied admonition to Hermes, but I could be wrong. It's not quite clear here. All right, so now they have to discover the cause of Earth's destruction and stop it in the past. So in this paragraph, I have a very journalistic set of questions to ask. How do they discover the cause of Earth's destruction? And why does Sandoval fall to the dark side? And for that matter, what is the dark side for a time agent? What are the things they're not supposed to do? Come to think of it, I don't think we're 100% clear on what they do do. The last paragraph of a query is a good place to have a long sentence with all the goals, antagonists, obstacles, what have you, all piled up. Stylistically slash rhetorically, it works well as a kind of crescendo towards the end. However, here, I think this sentence is a mite too unwieldy. Also, it uses the word corral again, which is more correct here, but you don't want to really repeat that kind of unusual verb twice in a query. The fact that the sentence needs to double back and use the phrase said millennial demigoddess, which is a great phrase, indicates that there probably could be a more efficient structure. I'd say you could actually just cut that part of the sentence short to and convincingly play a drunk eBay salesman, period. It's funny and invites the reader to wonder why the heck is being an eBay salesman necessary to finish your mission? Intrigue. Also, is the rogue time-traveling daughter Kirsty? If so, you can use her name here. Now the summary paragraph. It's a fun title, Fate, Love, and Hand Grenades. All the tombstone info here is done perfectly. Word count, genre, multiple points of view. I would say, though, that it's a good idea to find comps that are books. Star Trek is, of course, very well known, but in terms of actual readership, what other books are your ideal readers fans of? I.e., who could your agent pitch to? It doesn't seem like you're veering quite Douglas Adams here, but including one or two more lighthearted sci-fi authors here would help. I haven't read a ton of Dan Simmons because the terror freaked me the F out, but my inclination is to think that he's not really a comp for the story because his style is much heavier and denser than this feels like it would be, especially at 85,000 words compared to Simmons, I don't know, 10 billion per book. Then we have a bio paragraph about the writer's education, writing credits, and work history. Perfect. It's professional, it's polite, and it's exactly the right length. Thank you, Laura. This was a great query. That's the show. Again, thank you so much for listening. It's really exciting now that there's actual people out there hearing this and hopefully getting a lot of use out of the advice. I would love to hear what you think. You can contact me through the site or at me on Twitter, whatever you want. But as always, it's been a joy to produce this in my very cozy little office here. Thanks again to Christopher and Laura for being brave and sending in your queries. They rock. I'm so excited to have some sci-fi on the show. If you would like to have your query on The Query Show, you can just go to thequeryshow.com and fill out our submission form, where you can also join our mailing list and get a free query workbook written by yours truly and check out our previous episodes. And if you like this podcast, I would super appreciate if you would tell your writer friends, because the more people I get listing, the more variety of queries I can get on the show, the better it's all going to turn out. Uh, and also rate it on iTunes or wherever you listen. I should now be on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If there are other platforms that people listen to podcasts on, which I'm sure there are, let me know and I will make it happen. And for even more querying resources, you can go to our Patreon and become a patron. All patrons get written copies of the critiques to look at, download, study, take wherever you want, um, plus bonus episodes. I'm about to do a bonus episode all about internet pitch contests, which... 
you know, or sort of the new modern social media uh, sister practice to querying and something that I really love to talk about. I think there's big pluses, big minuses, a lot of in between. And I know writers are always curious about how to do them well and whether they're worth doing at all. So if you'd like to hear that episode, go to the Patreon and sign up and you will be able to download it as soon as it's available. That's it for this week. I have been your host, Blair Thornburg, and I will see you next time. Happy querying. Mm-hmm.